You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to Genesis 33. Genesis 33, we're going to be looking at the entire chapter, at least the lion's share of the entire chapter this morning. Study of the book of Genesis. Genesis 33, verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail, that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they're driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. But my Lord passed on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock. They're ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money, the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reading of your holy and sacred word. Father, we pray that, Lord, as we've already asked, that you would bless us, that you would be our teacher, you would be our guide. Oh, Father, you would arrest our minds and lead our minds through this text to that which you have purposed to teach us from this text. And that, O oh Father, you would make application to each of us, O oh Father, that you would drop the precious truths that are contained herein 
into our lives, O oh Father, into our lives on and what they look like on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. And, O oh Father, through this, O oh Father, you not only instruct us, but that you would change us and give to us, O oh Father, hearts that follow hard after these things that you would teach us. So, Father, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Every time I read verse 1, it seems to me that verse 1 here would really make a very powerful scene in a movie, would it not? Uh, some of us are visiting this morning and you haven't perhaps heard any of the messages that, that we have uh, been looking at or any of the cha previous chapters that come up to this. And you might be asking, well, I don't know. Uh, I, I suppose it would make a... Uh, for a great movie. But for those of us who have been studying this, uh, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, who was in front of him? It's Esau. It's Esau with 400 men. Now, what is that all about? If you're visiting here this morning, you scratch your head and say, okay, what, what's, what's so gripping about that? Well, if this were a movie, I suppose right now there would be a little caption underneath and it would say many years earlier. And there we would see Esau, much younger, walking through, uh, walking into the camp, into his uh, father's camp, if you will, hungry and famished, only to smell a stew that Jacob has been cooking. And he would walk in and he'd say, oh, I am famished. Give me some of that stew. And what does Jacob say to Esau's brother? Sell me your birthright. Jacob becomes Esau's tempter. It's malicious. It's ambitious. It's covetousness. And Esau, Esau doesn't really hold anything sacred, does he? He says, what good is my birthright? I'm famished. It's yours. Give me a bowl of stew. Jacob swindles or cons Esau out of his birthright for a bowl of stew. And then the caption under our, in our movie would say now 20 years earlier, 20 years earlier. And we're in the tent. And Isaac, Jacob and Esau's father, calls Esau into the tent in an underhanded and kind of backhanded way. He says, son, I want you to go out and hunt some game for me and cook it up just the way that I like and bring it to me so I can bless you. Now, what's underhanded about that? Well, it's the covenantal blessing that's being passed down, and it should be a public event. And God has made it very clear that Esau is not to be the recipient of it, but it is to be Jacob, and Isaac knows it. And that's why he's sneaking around in the tent doing it. But then there's Rebecca. There's mom. Nothing gets past mom. Right? <laughs> Not a whole lot. Not as much as we think. Anyway, she hears the whole thing and she calls her son Jacob and she conspires with Jacob. Listen, this is what your father's about to do. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into the tent and pose as Esau. I'm going to cook up some food and take it into him and pose as Esau and receive the blessing. And of course, at that point, Jacob says, Mom, I can't do anything like that. It's Father's Day. We can't do that. That's not what he says, is it? His only objection is, 
My brother's a hairy man, but I'm a smooth man. That's his objection, isn't it? In other words, I could get caught. And what does she do? Well, she, she masterminds the whole thing. She puts goat skins on his hands and on his neck, puts Esau's clothes on him, and off he goes in and he deceives his father, lies to him repeatedly, and takes the blessing. Soon after he has done this, Esau comes in with the game, cooked, ready to go, only to discover that his brother has already been there. Now, how does, those of you who've been with us through this study, how does Esau respond? Is he a happy boy? Man, he's infuriated. He's infuriated. And what is he doing? He's breathing murderous threats. We might use Luke's language. He's breathing, breathing murder. He says, I'm going to kill him. Now, this doesn't escape mom's notice either, does it? Rebecca, mom hears this. And she, you know, I got to say, she is brilliant. Rebecca was, Rebecca was brilliant. What does Rebecca do? She knows she's got to get Jacob out of there. So what does she do? Well, Esau had married some Canaanite women and had become a real thorn in uh, Isaac and Rebecca's side. So she goes to Isaac. She goes to her husband and says, listen, we need to send Jacob up. You need to send him up to my, to my kinsman. Send him up to Laban so that he can find a wife. So he doesn't marry these Canaanite daughters. Of course, Jacob does that. So off, or Isaac does that, and off Jacob goes up to his uncle Laban's. And now where's Jacob been for the last 20 years? He's been at Laban's. And as we've been studying this, Jacob has found himself enslaved to Laban, hasn't he? He's really been unable to get free from Laban. And when we were studying chapter 31, we, we really saw as we studied Jacob's flight from Laban and the way that God delivered Jacob from Laban, we saw that what we have there really is a preamble or a preview, if you will, of the Exodus, which we read about in the book bearing that name, the Exodus. God delivers Jacob from the tyranny of Laban. And Jacob is given command by God to go back to his homeland, to go back to his father's house. But there's an obstacle that's in the way, isn't there? And what is that obstacle? The obstacle is Esau. The obstacle is Jacob's past, isn't it? The obstacle is his past. We all have things in our past, don't we? In Genesis 32, if you'll look there with me, in verse 3, what's Jacob do? He sends messengers before him to Esau, his brother, undoubtedly to find out what kind of disposition his brother has these days. And if you look at verse 6, the messengers return to Jacob, and what do, they, what do they say? Well, they tell Jacob, listen, we came to your brother. We found your brother, and he's coming, you're, he's coming to meet with you, but he's coming with 400 men. Now, given this quick review, this brief review, how do you suppose that news affected Jacob? Esau's coming. I think Esau coming would be enough alone because Jacob is no match for his brother Esau. It's no match for him. Just news that Esau is on his way would be enough to instill fear in Jacob especially given the guilty conscience that Jacob has. But when added to that, he's being accompanied by 400 men. How, I mean, what in the world would you be thinking? And here, see, Jacob is rightfully terrified. He's thinking that Esau's coming to attack. And then in verse 9, Jacob does something we have no record of him doing. 
He prays. And in verse 11, part of his prayer, he says to the Lord, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me. The mothers with the children. But in verse 12, he embraces the promise. He says, Lord, I will, you have promised I will surely, you, you will surely do good to me and make my offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he's embracing the promises, isn't he? Well, in this chapter, Jacob does get attacked in this chapter, doesn't he? But not by Esau. No, he gets attacked by someone else. This man begins to wrestle with him. And in this sense, attacks him and wrestles with him all night long, all the way till daybreak, until finally the man touches the hip socket of Jacob. And in touching his hip socket, just merely touching his hip socket, throws it out of joints. And that's when Jacob begins to realize he's not wrestling with a mere man, but he's actually wrestling with God. He's wrestling with God. And what does Jacob do? Does he try to get away? No, he clings to God. He clings to God. He can no longer wrestle with God. His strength is removed. Your hip's out of socket. You're not wrestling with anybody at that point. He is brought to nothing. And that was my point last week. He was dislocated. He was brought to nothing. He was brought to that place where he realized, guess what? I have no wits. I have no strength. I have no connivering. I have nothing. The only strength that I have is the strength of the Lord. The only thing I can do is cling to Him, and that's what Jacob does. He clings to the Lord. And the point of all of that is we too have to be brought to that place, don't we? We have to be brought to the place where we're no longer going to trust in ourselves, where we're no longer going to trust in our ingenuity. We're no longer going to trust in our mechanisms or our our schematics or our our ways, where we're finally just going to say, Lord, I have no righteousness. I have no strength. I have nothing. I cling to you. Jacob is a changed man. He's a changed man. He's different after that. And one of the ways we know that is he leaves there with a limp, doesn't he? He's a humbled man. He's a changed man. And that brings us to this scene. Verse 1, chapter 33. Jacob, having just wrestled all night with the Lord, he lifts up his eyes and looked, and behold, who's in front of him? His brother Esau, who he hasn't seen in 20 years, and 400 men, a small army. And there we're told that Jacob divides his children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. Verse 2, he put the servants with the children front, Leah with her children Next row, Rachel and Joseph last of all. And here we can conclude quickly, Jacob is a changed man, but he's not a perfect man. He's a changed man, but he's not a perfect man. Why do I say that? Look at the favoritism. How would you like to be in the front row? Well, I see where I'm at in the pecking order here. Well, that's what Jacob grew up with favoritism. His father loved his brother and his mother loved him. Favorites. It's been passed down. We pass great things to our children. We pass ugly things to our children, don't we? We do a little bit of both. But we see a different Jacob here in verse 3. We see there, if you look there, you'll see that 
Jacob himself went on before them. Now, there's been a long in the study here. Where's Jacob been in the, in, the, in the order of things this whole time? Where's he been? Prior to wrestling with God, he has had himself dead last, hasn't he? He has been insulating himself from Esau with his servants and his family. Here we see a different Jacob, though. What does he do here? What a fitting verse on Father's Day. He truly is a father. What does he do? He steps forward and stands in danger and puts himself between the danger and his family. Is he a perfect father? No, he's not a perfect father. Is he a changed father? Absolutely. He sure is. Now, how does Esau respond? Well, before we get to that, I'm getting ahead of myself. Look back again to verse 3. As Jacob approaches Esau, notice what he does. He bows himself to the ground seven times. That's kind of kind of foreign to us, isn't it? Does anybody ever, do you ever go around doing that? People think you're a little strange if you bowed down and took a couple steps and bowed down and took a couple steps, but not in this culture. In this culture, we've all seen this, and we've seen this in, in situations and instances where a lot of reverence and honor is trying to be communicated. And that's exactly what Jacob is doing. He's bowing himself to his brother. Now, mind you, Jacob is the one chosen by God to be the covenant, to receive the covenant blessing. But he is humbling himself. And there's such a lesson for us in that. Being called to Jesus is being called to serve, isn't it? I remember Edmund Clowney writing in one of his books. I, I remember reading this sentence like it was yesterday, and I read it all the way back when I was studying, doing my undergrad in Geneva College, where Edmund Clowney said, the call to Christ is the call to service. That's what that sentence said. The call to Christ is the call to service. Here he is bowing himself. Calvin comments on this verse and says that Jacob was worshiping the Lord each time he bowed down. That was Calvin's take on it. Undoubtedly, he was calling out to the Lord for deliverance. Now, in verse 4, how does Esau respond to this? Esau ran to meet him, verse 4, embraced him, fell on his neck, kissed him, and they wept. This is beautiful. Isn't it beautiful? Both brothers are weeping. I don't want to make a whole lot of this, but just something I want to point out. Notice the text says that he fell on his neck, that Esau fell on Jacob's neck. I don't want to make a lot of this, but here's a thought, and you do what you want with it. This is just a thought I'll throw out there. But when Jacob is deceiving his father, he goes into his blind father's presence wearing goatskin on his hands, and where else? Do you remember? On his neck. Now, I think I can make more of this, though. Notice that a kiss is exchanged by these brothers. And you'll recall back in chapter 27, at the height of Jacob's deception of his father, he is asked to draw near, and he gives his father a kiss while he is deceiving him. 
And I pointed out when we were in that place that that reminds us of something really ugly that takes place in the New Testament, doesn't it? Namely, when Judas gives Jesus a kiss as he is betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. I I can't help but to think that as these brothers are weeping, that this is going through Jacob's mind. Here is my brother receiving me and kissing me in sincerity when I had kissed my father in deceit. It would be tears of joy, but also be tears of humiliation, wouldn't it? It would be such a mixed bag, wouldn't it? It would be such a mixed bag. In verse 5, look at these words. And when Esau lifted up his eyes, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds like verse 1. Here we see a little bit of structure in the passage. So we have Jacob lifting up his eyes in verse 1. We have Esau lifting up his eyes in verse 5. And he lifts up his eyes, undoubtedly, probably wiping the tears away from his eyes. And he saw the women and children. And what does he say? He says to his brother, who are these? In other words, what's he, what's he doing? He's just saying, Jacob, who, introduce me to your family. Introduce me to your family. Oh, it's beautiful, isn't it? Inter- introduce me to your family. Who are these? Jacob answers. They notice Jacob's a changed man. He says, these are the children whom God has graciously given your servant. I think it's interesting. I have really been convicted on this verse. I'll tell you why. Because of this reason. Jacob doesn't elaborate. Oh boy, Esau, you, you, you don't know what the 20, last 20 years have been like. Man, this, this is Uncle Laban, man. Steer clear of him. I go up there, I work seven years for Rachel's hand, and next thing I know, I'm married to Leah. I work another seven years, and then I'm still penniless. 14 years, penniless. I got a slew of kids, and if it isn't bad enough, I try to make an arrangement with Laban, and he changes my wages ten times. It's not what he does, is it? I'm so convicted by this. When, when, when Jacob surveys the last 20 years, what does he have to say in summary of those last 20 years? He says this, These are the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Oh, wow. That's amazing, isn't it? If there isn't a lesson in there for us. Well, then the servants, they draw near with their children. They bow down, verse 6. Verse 7, likewise, Leah, her children, draw near and bow down. Then Joseph and Rachel, they draw near and bow down. Then Esau asks another question. He says, what do you mean by all this company that met me? In other words, you recall back in chapter 32 that when Jacob was still trying to really figure this out, how he's going to meet with Esau, uh, he puts together, the, I mean, he offers Esau this large, large retinue of livestock, doesn't he? And he puts them in droves. I, I, I suppose it probably looks like this. He, he takes the camels and they're milking uh, whatever you call a baby camel. It escapes me at the moment, but he's got the camels all together. And he tells one of his servants, listen, uh, take the camels out. And when you meet my brother and he asks you, what's up with the camels? Say that this is a, a present from your servant Esau. And then he instructs 
the rest of his servants to do the same. So you have these droves going out and a little space between them, then another drove going out and a little space between them and another drove going out. And all of the servants are instructed to say exactly the same thing to Esau. They say exactly the same thing. So Esau has received all this livestock and each time he's received a drove, he's heard a servant say exactly the same thing. This is a present from your servant, Jacob. So I don't think, and again, this, 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 this is my thought. You can take this or leave this. But I don't think right here that Esau is asking this question because he doesn't know the answer. I think Esau is asking this question because he wants to hear it from Jacob. And he says, what do you mean by all of this? He's already heard from all these servants, hasn't he? I think he wants to hear from Jacob. Jacob answers, well, here's what this means. It's to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Now, in verse 9, Esau said, well, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob says, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Now, what's that all about? How can Jacob say that seeing Esau's face is like seeing the face of God? Never mind, Esau's outside of the covenant. Esau's not even a believer. It's a very multifaceted thing here. It's a, it's a bowl full of goodies, actually. I think um, some of us who have been up against it, you've been in a situation, whether it be financial or whatever it be, where, okay, you're up against it, and you call on the Lord, and you call for His help, and He gives you help in such a way where it's really clear that God has been with you. When you have those moments, and if you've had those moments, you know what I'm talking about. Seeing that deliverance is in a way like seeing God, isn't it? And I think that warms us up to what's going on here. What was Jacob expecting? He's expecting deliverance to some degree because God has promised it to him, but he doesn't know how it's going to work out. But when Esau embraces him like that, and just warmly accepts him and receives him. In other words, he is receiving Jacob's repentance because make no mistake about it. What is Jacob doing with all this livestock? What is Jacob doing with all of this, all these gestures of, of reverence and, and, um, and, and I don't know if we want to call it adoration, but honor? Jacob is repenting. He's repenting. And here Esau has received his repentance. And he is warmly embracing his brother. And in doing so, Jacob is receiving mercy from Esau. Now, with that thought in mind, take a look back to chapter 32 and verse 29. Jacob has been wrestling with the Lord all night long. His hip has now been brought out of socket. Jacob realizes he's wrestling with God. He will not let him go. And he says to the Lord, please tell me your name. But the Lord says, why is it that you ask my name? And there the Lord blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. 
saying, For I have what? I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. When the Lord attacks Jacob, make no mistake about it, there is a sense in which when he attacks him, he attacks him as his enemy. Now, that might be a new thought for many of us. They say, wait a second, God is an enemy? Yes, God is an enemy. If you're not in Christ Jesus this morning, God is your enemy. You're probably never going to hear that again in our culture. Because our culture teaches everywhere, that, oh, God, God don't have any enemies, just the real bad guys, that's all. Now, if you're not in Christ Jesus this morning, the wrath of God is upon you. When God attacks Jacob, there's a sense in which God is Jacob's opponent. They're wrestling. God so mercifully accommodates his strength to Jacob, so it's such an even match that it goes well into daybreak. But in a sense, God is his attacker. But God shows him mercy. God shows him mercy. God doesn't attack Jacob to destroy Jacob. God attacks Jacob to transform Jacob. And Jacob has met God now. And that's why it's so important that he gets right with Esau, because he has met God, and he has received mercy from God. And then when he meets Esau, he sees that same mercy behind Esau's uh, favorable disposition towards, uh, towards him, what does he see? He sees the same mercy. He sees the mercy of God in this situation, so much so that he can, look at you, he can look at his brother Esau and say, seeing you, seeing this way that you're receiving me, seeing that you're receiving my repentance, is, it's just like back there when I wrestle with God. It's like seeing the face of God. What a beautiful thing. What a beautiful thing. Verse 11, please accept my blessing. See the blessing? Please accept my blessing. Jacob stole the blessing off of his brother Esau. Now he's trying to return it. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with with me because I have enough. Notice he says, I have enough. We dwell in a culture that never has enough. We never have enough. We just always want more and more and more, don't we? Jacob says, I have enough. Thus he urged him, and Esau took it. And in verse 12, Esau Esau said, come on, let us journey on our way, and I'll go ahead of you. In other words, what's Esau doing? He said, come on, let's go down to see her. Come on, let's go down and dwell together and see her. Can Jacob do that? I mean, it seems like the thing we should, should, should do, isn't it? Catch up on old times and go down to see her. That's something Jacob can't do. Because Jacob has been given instructions to go back to Canaan. And Seir is not in Canaan. As much joy as there is in this text, I find a lot of sadness in this text. And it starts in verse 12. I mean, in many ways, we could say, boy, Esau, he's really changed too. Esau's really a, he's really a changed man. And he is but his changes are short of salvation. Recognize that, please. His changes are short of salvation. These two brothers are on two different paths. 
Esau is a man of this world, and he is headed to Seir, which is a city of this world. Jacob has been given instructions to go back to the land of Canaan, which is the land of promise. These two brothers are on different paths. I find that to be so sad. What does Jacob do? Jacob responds, verse 13, he says, Oh, my Lord knows that the children are frail, the nursing flocks. In other words, he points to, his, to the care, to all the burdens he has and the responsibilities he has of all of his young ones. And so listen, to that. I'm going to have to lay lag behind here and take care of them and move at a slower pace. But then what's Esau say? Well, I'll, send, I'll leave a couple of my guys with you to help you. And Jacob's like, no, 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 it's, uh, that's okay. And I think they're getting the impression. I mean, there's some commentaries that want to turn this into Jacob deceiving his brother, and, 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 and some commentaries are so negative with this whole thing. And you remember what I've been saying in all this. We're not giving these stories to slam the patriarchs. I think it takes us in the wrong direction if we take that route. What do I think is going on? I think it's like this, where you catch up. Two brothers catch up, but it's very obvious they're on different paths. But what is the courteous thing to do? Oh, come on. Come on down to Sierra for a little while. Yeah, well, you know, I got, kind of got this thing over here. Well, here, I'll help you. Ah, it's okay. I think that's what's taking place here. Because Esau returns back to the world. Jacob, he heads to Canaan. And the last thing we find Jacob doing in verse 20 is erecting an altar and calling that altar El Elchei Israel. We find Jacob in worship. Esau hasn't, he's exemplary in so many ways, but he hasn't breathed a spiritual word through this whole thing. All right, what do we do with all this? What do we do with this uh, somewhat lengthy explanation of this text here? What do we do? Because it seems like we've got pieces all over the place. Is there a unifying principle that we could look at all of this and, and say, okay, how do we put this together? And I, I, I have one for you, and I'm basing it off of, a famous sermon that some of you have heard of, probably arguably one of the most famous uh, theologians in the United States was a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. And he wrote a sermon that some of us studied when we were in high school. Like once upon a time, he used to study stuff like this in high school. And the sermon that he wrote, probably the most, one of the most famous sermons anyway in United States history, was a sermon entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I, that's where I got the idea for the title of this message. I want to call it this, Sinners in the Hands of a Gracious God. A Gracious God. And of course, Jonathan Edwards, I think, would embrace that. Uh, I make no, I, I realize that someone might think, well, Rick's trying to correct Jonathan Edwards. No, he's not. <laughs> no. Far be it from me. No, I, I'm just using, I'm just borrowing a, a title of his sermon. That sermon was masterful. If you've never read it, I Google it. You can read it online. But it seems to me that what we have here is a sinner. His name's Jacob. And look at all the changes that we've seen in Jacob. He is a sinner who is in the hands of a merciful and gracious God. Because if it weren't for that, what would Jacob be doing? He'd be doing everything he could to avoid Esau. And scholars tell us that he could have went a different route and he could have avoided Esau altogether. And I really, really quickly, I'll move through five things that I see in this text. There are more, but five things that I see in this text that show the changes 
that take place here as a result of being in God's gracious hands. One is he seeks reconciliation with those whom he's wronged. It's costly for Jacob to do this, isn't it? It'd be easier for him just to go around Esau and save face and keep his... Scholars tell us there were 550 animals, I think, given away. I didn't count them. I trust that's the right number. But we could say 500 plus. A large group of livestock Jacob has given. It's been costly. Why is he doing that? Because reconciliation is important to him. That's one of the marks of a person who's in God's gracious hands. In other words, that's the mark of a Christian. One of my professors once said that American Christianity is a secularized Christianity. And I think that is so true. I think it is so true. Christianity is radical. It is so radical that a Christian is a person who should desire reconciliation with everyone. And that isn't always how we feel, is it? Especially when we've been hurt and we've been wronged really deeply. But we, if you're in Christ and you've been forgiven so much, what should our disposition be towards those who have wronged us? Our disposition should be that they would come to us like Jacob is coming to Esau. That they would come to us in true repentance. And that they would come to us and be reconciled. If our hearts, listen, it's like this. If our hearts are not on that page, our hearts are out of step with the gospel. Because if God would have dealt with us that way, there wouldn't be one of us sitting here this morning. Jesus, what is he saying? I'm going to go. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Why? Because he desires to be reconciled with his people. And he desires to be with them. Does that make sense? We see this so powerfully in Jacob's life. He can't, he has to deal with Esau. He has wronged Esau. He has to deal with Esau. Second is he humbles himself, putting himself in danger, actually. He humbles himself. We see that all over the place. Thirdly, he attributes all of his prosperity, everything that's good in his life, to God's gracious hand, doesn't he? I, I find that to be really so convicting he, that he doesn't whine about all of the stuff he's been through. We're so quick, and I know I'm so quick to whine about all of the difficulties. He doesn't whine about the difficulties. He just looks at everything and says, God has been so gracious to me. Fourthly, he sees Esau's mercy towards him as God's mercy, doesn't he? Seeing you is like seeing the face of God. And fifthly, he puts the commandment of God ahead of his family ties. You suppose it was tempting for him to go down to Seir and catch up with, with Esau? I don't know. Perhaps. What I do know is he didn't. And there's a truth in there. Our allegiance to Jesus is to be such an allegiance that our, our, it's our primary allegiance. Even our, my allegiance to Jesus needs to be a stronger allegiance than my allegiance to Tammy. And hers. Same, same. It's above family ties. Now, we ask ourselves, how in the world could we ever be transformed in anything like this? Well, the answer 
is that this is only possible as Jesus, the reconciler, gets his hands on us, isn't it? How is this made possible? It's made possible by Jesus going to the cross and taking the penalty of our sins and then giving us his perfect record and righteousness. And then going, ascending to the Father where the Holy Spirit is then now dispatched down upon his people. I think something that's really convicting here, another thing that's really convicting about this text is Esau. Esau is a man who's outside of the covenant. Yet look at, look at the graciousness that he treats his brother with. He's not a man whom the Holy Spirit dwells. He's a heathen. The scriptures describe him as a heathen. He's a heathen. Yet look at the forgiveness that he offers to his brother. He doesn't bring things up. He runs. He grabs him. Falls on his neck and kisses him. He doesn't say, I wanted to kill you. He doesn't say, you did me so wrong. He doesn't rehash every detail as so many people tell you you need to do to be reconciled. This is proof that you don't need to rehash every single detail of the wrong. Sure, there are times where some things need to be brought up and worked out and ironed out. But when this is really taking place, when someone comes to us in repentance, like, you don't want to run, run through all of the thick and the mud and everything. I think that one of the reasons we're given this passage is God is saying, look, Esau was able to do this. How much more should those in the New Testament economy, in the New Testament dispensation of the covenant of grace, who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in their hearts, how much more should we be able to do this? Do you understand what I'm saying? And what a great indictment against us if we don't. Esau stands as an indictment against us if we don't. Our preacher is Esau, isn't he? This is a hard word that I'm preaching. It's a hard word. I know it's a hard word. As I look at my own performance in things, I'm, it's a hard word. But I think we've bought into, just like Dr. Kinnear said, I think we've bought into a secularized Christianity. Christianity is much more radical than we realize. This is Christianity. Christianity looks like Stephen as he's being stoned to death, crying out, Lord, do not hold this against them. Or Jesus when he's being crucified. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's so radical. That is so radical. That's Christianity. And I'm, I submit that our hearts are Pretty far out of step with that. But here, here we have correction. Here we find God's grace. The mercy that Jacob receives looks forward to Jesus' suffering. And the mercy that we receive looks back. One and the same. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray for your grace. Oh, Father, Many of the things that have been spoken of this morning, I am so guilty of. And oh, Father, I stand in a company of people that I, I have to guess are saying the same thing. And we look to you, oh, Father, for correction. We look to you, oh, Father, for encouragement. We look to you, oh, Father, for motivation. But oh, Father, we need look nowhere else but you for the transforming grace to be what you're calling us to be. Oh, Father, work in our hearts that 
we would desire this reconciliation, that we would walk in this humility, that we would, that we would attribute all this good in our lives to your gracious hand, and that we would see all the mercy that we receive from others as your mercy, that we would see the, your commandments as being greater than even those family ties that we hold on to so dearly. That we would love you more than we love our families. Oh, Father, transform us that we too, oh, Father, would be sinners in the hands of you, oh, Father, oh, gracious God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.